Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps a fundraiser perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, meaningful relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong givers. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their donors. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Podcast listeners, the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow is finally back on the schedule. We have several dates confirmed. Since 2014, our team has been providing high-quality one-day roadshows in partnership with nonprofit leaders who want to showcase their space and provide thought-provoking and highly interactive fundraising training in their nonprofit community. Our roadshows have been described by our guest as hands-down the best professional development experience that they have ever been a part of. This experience has been described as challenging assumptions with conversation-inspiring content and new ways of thinking. If you would like to register for one of the upcoming stops on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, just visit the link in the show notes. Hi, Jillian. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. You and I have had the pleasure of getting to know each other. I posted something several weeks ago in the midst of the uh, midst of the election, uh, something that had to do with um, probably our topic of conversation today. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag early. But um, uh, we're going to have a conversation here today. I'm delighted to have had the pleasure to get to know you. We met here on a similar platform a couple of weeks ago to get to know each other. And we said we'd circle back and have this podcast conversation. So uh, I'm delighted to have you. Jillian, before we dive into our conversation, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. My name is Jillian Day. I am a fundraising generalist out of Houston, Texas, with a very noisy phone that I'm about to put on you. <laughs> That's um, perfect. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I uh, have had the pleasure for the last seven years of working at the Houston Zoo, one of the uh, uh, top zoos in the country. And I over, uh, I have a, uh, if we're getting technical, I work with major and principal gifts, but my specialty is uh, legacy giving. And I I'm very lucky to work with um, people that invest in animals and conservation. But I've, I've had 10 years of experience in fundraising, social services before that. And then my first career was in healthcare consulting. Jillian, you know, it's been, I think it's been probably, I don't know, it's been hundreds, let's just say it's been hundreds of conversations since I've talked to somebody who works uh, for a zoo. Uh, I remember very early on, probably in the first episode, first 50 episodes or so, I remember I had the pleasure of a conversation with a woman at the, I think at the, at the Detroit Zoo. Um, I, I know it was up in Michigan somewhere. I, I want to say it was probably in Detroit. Um, but um, hey, when I was thinking about this conversation today, the first question I wanted to ask is, so how did zoos, how did fundraisers in, in environments like yours navigate the pandemic, the zoo? How did that, how did that work out? With a lot of digital, like yeah. everybody else. And yeah. um, I will say, uh, you know, it was interesting. I never worked at a cultural institution until, yeah. and I learned a lot about how zoos fit in the scheme of um, uh, landscape of city uh, growth and um, why people give. Yeah. But to answer your question, I, I will say it was a lot of, it was a lot of what we just get back to basics with. It was a lot of stewardship um, because in the middle of this, we were also fundraising for a capital campaign. And um, 
that uh, one of the best pieces of advice that I heard early on set the tone by uh, our leadership was uh, just to meet people where they're at. And I think that's a theme you'll hear when I bring up on a different topic later today um, is meeting people where they're at and meeting people yeah. where, where they're at by checking in with them as people first. Um, I, I've always believed that the top qualities of a frontline fundraiser are those who can be authentic, who can be curious and who can bring their full selves to the places where they work. And that human connection was never more so important than we were closed for three months. Um, it was a lot of, I, I put lots of photo albums together for people. We had a great marketing team that did our, um, you know, uh, digital engagement with that we could send videos and stuff, but it was a lot of just checking in with people and talking to them. Um, there's, I had the pleasure of doing a visit last week with a individual who got to know uh, my family, who got to know an older woman. And it was the first time I'd seen her in three years, but we talked on the phone a lot and her giving stayed the same through no, you know, no ask. It just simply um, her husband passed during it. And so we became good friends. I had a a dear aunt that just passed and she knew her, we, we knew each other as people. And I'd say that's what allowed us to not only continue fundraising, but to hit some significant goals along the way. Um, the organizations I've talked to that have thrived in the pandemic were the ones that gave their fundraisers the full breath to be authentic, curious, and to bring their full selves, wherever that meant they were on the, uh, Mentally, you know, everybody kind of, I think, had a check in about mental health during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, I am a classic uh, person with OCD and generalized anxiety. And so that was a whole other experience to go through. And I was privileged to work in an organization that accounted for that, where we were as people and checked in with our donors as well. And that's, the, I think it's the human part of that that really made us as successful as we've been in the last three years. Fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, Jillian, we ask our guests to come on here with a big idea, bold opinion. Very rarely do we, uh, the person in my seat, get the pleasure of knowing exactly the direction we're going. It sort of keeps me as the host on my toes. Um, as someone who uh, usually has plenty to say, if not more to say than, uh, than the person in your seat, um, uh, me not knowing the direction we're necessarily going to go usually keeps me, uh, keeps my Ears, ears open and my mouth a little less, uh, my mouth a little closed. So um, what do you got for us today? Well, I think for some context. Um, so I have, I so I have epilepsy. I've had uh, multiple disabilities when you look at me, but you don't, you, I guess that, let me start with my first question. When you, when I hopped on the screen, what did, when you just look at me, describe to me what you see. You, you, you I, I see a woman with blonde hair, green blouse. Um, you look like uh, nothing on you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and I, I think that's a good question. There's a, um, there's a classic piece of literature in the diversity and inclusion space that yeah. depicts an iceberg. And it shows the top of the iceberg is everything that we can see, everything right. we just looked at. Right. A larger part of that, along dimensions of diversity, is all the stuff you can't see. Right. And we connected because I, um, you made a comment about being somebody with seizures. And it's yes. rare that I, for whatever reason, I just in this space, in my previous life, I, I was very active in the disability advocacy. It's actually what led me to fundraising. Um, but I'll get to that a little bit later. Um, it's not often you see someone raise their hand and I'm seeing more of that related to people with disabilities, especially the ones you can't see. Yeah. So I was really intrigued to reach out to you on LinkedIn. Cause I was like, I, you're the first person I, I met that kind of, you know, I mean, people who know me know I have it. It's, it's not like some secret I keep. I'm quite upfront with it actually. But, um, it got me thinking about the conversations happening in our space about inclusion and diversity and it led me to this question, um, how does unseen diversity impact a fundraiser's journey? And I got to thinking about this when we talked, because that's exactly the, the answer to that question is how I ended up in fundraising in the first place. And I have been successful as a fundraiser 
because the organizations I've worked for have not seen that as a potential issue to my talent or my competence in the space. They've seen it as an asset. And they've given me the structures and systems to do that, what we might call accommodations in the workplace, which are often not complicated. I've, in my experience, I came from an HR background. It's simply meeting people where they're at and giving them the uh, space and the things they need to be successful and then letting them do that. Um, And so I thought it prompted me to think a lot about my own journey and how when I was a kid, um, uh, I was diagnosed with epilepsy when I was 15. So I've had it for going on about 23 years now, most of my yeah. life. Yeah. When I was a kid, I was diagnosed with Tourette syndrome. And that's a uh, neurological uh, disorder that now falls under the uh, neurodivergent term. And kind of falls in the same category with, um, uh, not in the same category, but uh, neurodivergent if you look that up, can include autism, can include Asperger's. And I never knew anybody. Like when I was that age, I was having a conversation with my mom about this. I never knew anybody that had Tourette's. The only person I knew was a former uh, Major League Baseball player named Jim Eisenreich from the 90s. And he was with the, um, uh, not that he was with the, the Marlins, the Florida Marlins, where I'm from. And it was it was an action. It was a great early example of representation mattering, mattering because my mom said I would have given anything to have known anybody, male or female, whatever. Right, like just to know somebody that I could say, look, my child will be successful because those were not the messages I were getting from doctors, from psychologists, and then you know, it, it you you roll into um, uh, teenage years and it just gets even more awkward. And so I guess I was just simply inspired by the fact that you raised your hand. And I thought, you know, if, if there wasn't somebody like that for me, and this is why I think representation is so key to in our field and media really kind of take your pick, then I'd like, I, I, you know, if someone's listening and they have epilepsy or they have some kind of unseen dimension of diversity that they know is there. It's the first thing they see when they look in the mirror, whatever that is, but everybody else doesn't unless they say something about it. Um, I guess I just chose to come on here and be vulnerable about that because I would have liked that to have been something that my mom would have had 30 years ago. Yeah. You know, as I've been thinking about this, cause I had a sense this was the direction our conversation was going to go. And I think there's two, I think there's sort of two ways to sort of explore your question the sort of the unseen disabilities, the unseen diversity that we're that we're talking about, the the seizure disorder that you and I sh- we share similar seizure disorders, and so that's something that we can sort of center around. But there's also sort of the 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 awareness of sort of the story that I think fundraising should afford. You know, in in fundraising, we talk a lot about being storytellers, or we talk about how mm-hmm. you know fundraising at its best is storytelling. But I don't know that we, as a fundraising community, are sort of affording ourselves, especially as we build this professional community, the benefit of story. And so, for example, my wife and I, and this is completely off the sort of this is this is complete. This is a bunny trail that's completely unrelated to our seizure disorders. Our com, you know that that common thread between you and I. But my wife and I, for example, have been on sort of a spiritual journey since the election of Donald Trump and our sort of a, a struggling association with the evangelical church that we grew up with. And I think sort of walking or familiarizing ourselves with more of the story, which we're oftentimes maybe, you know, somewhat fascinated with, with our donors. But I think the question you're asking, Jillian, is, is what about the story about the people on our side of the equation? Am mm-hmm. I right? Yeah. And and, uh, that's a great segue into um, what I was just going to share, because that's I think. So let me back up. I think there are people that know they want to do fundraising. I work with several people that knew that early on. They've been in fundraising their whole careers. I was not that I was a a late. I've heard it described as my second career. I didn't know this was there. All these other. Um, I was lucky to have my seizures be managed um, enough that I could drive. And um, when I moved back to Texas about 16 years ago with my husband yeah, and I had the pleasure of working in healthcare at some of the top institutions in the Texas medical center. 
And, but I always felt like there was something lacking. My background is in sociology and people. Um, I find groups, I find groups doing positive change, social movements, incredibly fascinating. And so I happen to have had a seizure at work. That's a whole nother story to unpack about how do you navigate that? But it got me thinking about where am I spending my time? And I had always, I had a a very close family member who um, had multiple disabilities, physical and otherwise. And it got me thinking about, you know, for people who are in the community that, uh, you know, whether it's they're in their workplace and they're advocating for an accommodation or they don't have somebody who's their advocate. That's a whole other element of social services is people who are on Medicaid waiver list, people who can't, um, who don't have families with means. I was lucky to have a family that could afford to have my mom stay at home and take care of my brother and I. Um, and teach us how to be advocates for ourselves. There's a lot of people who don't have that luxury and even navigating that whole system. That's a whole nother podcast. Um, so it got me thinking, you know, what, why as a person with a disability and representing a community that I can relate to, I had never heard of fundraising. And then as I got more involved in disability advocacy, um, about 10, 12 years ago, I started finding out more about fundraising. And it just resonated with me on a level that nothing I'd ever encountered in my professional life did. And I was fortunate to have um, some mentors that were, you know, well-known in that space and helped me kind of understand the role of fundraising played um, with just people with disabilities themselves. And it, it's how I ended up at the first charity I worked at. Um, they're local here in uh, Houston, and they um, uh, provide homes and uh, case management support to adults and children on the Texas Medicaid waiver list with complicated developmental and physical disabilities. There is a at least 10 plus year waiting list for these kind of services. So the demand is very, very high with very short supply. And I, it was one of the, I, I, it was some of the, it was a great initial entry into fundraising, but I think what resonated with me the most was I was somebody sharing their story in many cases for people who couldn't articulate their story and why the need to support them in the community was important. And I could get that because not only did I have a disability that several of them had, which were seizure disorders, but I also had an aunt who was developmentally delayed. So the whole holistic version, um, what I've always said people or told people is I can fundraise for people and I can fundraise for animals. I can't really fundraise for anything else because those are near and dear to my heart. Um, but it was a holistic approach to bring, I brought my full self to that. And I couldn't imagine fundraising in an environment where I couldn't do that. You know, I think, and, and honestly, Jillian, this is, a, you know, I have not talked a whole lot about this. I've never been shy about talking about my own seizure disorder, my own experiences. I, I started having seizures uh, very similar to you when I was about 12 or 13 years old. And that's what I recently commented about um, on LinkedIn. And that's how our conversation got started. But I think what what has been particularly advantageous for me as I've started to make sense of this, as I've made sense of this, is that I spent some time raising money as a major gifts officer at the Epilepsy Foundation. So I both, you know, professionally speaking and then personally speaking, have been affected by this. And one of the things that I was able to make sense of, which I think is something that all of us as fundraisers can really you know, maybe wrestle with and get our heads wrapped around is that there are some, there are some, you know, I got to know, here's what I'm getting at. I got to know extraordinarily wealthy people who had children or grandchildren that had seizure disorders that, you know, and I've always sort of said it this way. They just wanted to fix their children or their grandchildren. They were desperate. They would put any dollar they possibly had into finding a fix for their, for their children or their grandchildren. Right. Um, And, and it was this, it was this common struggle. Oftentimes in my conversations, you know, I'd be having lunch with a major donor or something. I raised some significant dollars in Houston, for example, from a, a gentleman, a grandfather who's in the, the medical supply industry and has a grandchild. I remember him to this day, um, you know, has a grandchild that's significantly affected by a, a, a very rare but uh, difficult form of, of, of epilepsy. And... I mean, goodness gracious, the, the, it's an overwhelm. 
it's an overwhelming sort of thing to sort of get your head wrapped around. You walk into somebody's home, mm-hmm. extraordinary home, extraordinary wealth, all these sorts of things that look like they've got it all together. Um, and then all of a sudden you sort of get to know this one particular struggle um, mm-hmm. that it doesn't, ma- it doesn't matter how much money they got in the bank. It does not matter. <laughs> I remember meeting a couple, for example, Jillian. I remember meeting a couple in Ohio once, Cincinnati, Ohio. They were so desperate to find a way to help their, you know, I think at the time their daughter was about 10 or 11 years old. Um, didn't matter how much money they had. They, um, were just, they were just desperate and anxious and willing to experiment with anything they possibly could. to try to to fix that. One thing I want to mention on that same note is, and this is where I think I I, I will probably keep coming back to this representation matters in our field. Yeah. There is no reason that our, for the multiple amounts of um, different groups that we represent, that same representation should be seen in fundraisers. And because this is um, what I always found similarly when I would have similar conversations the minute take away, um, uh, you built that connection. So the minute I would tell somebody I had a seizure, I had an aunt, it's like my mom used to say, it's like you're a member of the club. You can just cut through all the initial, how are you, hi, nice to meet you, pleasantries, because you know what that person's going through, whether you're a parent of someone with special needs or you yourself have grown up with special needs or disabilities. That's a whole relationship connection that only that group gets much like other, other, I think, demographics of diversity. And that is a powerful, um, a powerful common reflection point to have as a fundraiser and to be able to say, I get what you're going through. I know what that's like. I've had those struggles. I've had those late nights. I've had those, those, what is my child going to go through? I know what it's like. And then taking it one step further um, you were working for the National Epilepsy Foundation, taking it for them to say, you know, I have all these means and I can afford to get my child the best therapy, the best, um, the best, set them up, the best up for success. Right. What about all those people that don't have that? They don't yeah. have that. Yeah. And it takes you one step further with your journey by not just looking at it by what the, in this case, the, the disability connection and then saying, okay, how does my uh, means give me the ability to have access to things that other people don't. And that was really what I was passionate about working for that organization. Cause there's so many people that rely on government social programs. And it's a whole other conversation about that, but there's just something that endears you when a donor can look at you and say, you know what I'm going through. Like, you know what it's like to be the parent, to be the person. Um, and it just connects you on a level that no other amount of no other amount of formality or building a case for support will. Yeah, I think another one of the enlightening experiences I had when I was at epilepsy was the idea that um, was the experience I had in Los Angeles. So I flew out. You know, I, I'm playing the traditional role that a gift officer does, and I fly out to Los Angeles. Actually, I think I flew into flew into flew into San Diego, and I sort of made my way up the the southern half of the coast there in california and i met with a number of donors throughout the week and jillian one of the things that i remember from that visit i mean some of these people were hollywood types some of these people if i named them you'd know exactly these are these are hollywood types who either they themselves or someone else that they love are affected by seizure disorders and they were very careful i remember i remember one conversation that i had with a gentleman and his wife um they didn't want me to ref, you know, don't reference my name, don't reference our son. You know, it was there, there was that stigma that individuals like yourself, my, our sort of our generation and anyone older, um, that I, I, I don't know. I haven't talked to anyone in the epilepsy community in so long that I wouldn't even know. Um, but I, I'd still say, I'd still say it's a stigma. I think, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was the, that was a big thing. Um, that it was that stigma. And I remember this. So, I mean, this is a celebrity. This is like celeb. This is like a list celebrity telling me don't reference my name. Um, and, and, and all that, all that status 
that sort of comes with being an A-list celebrity in Hollywood sort of just mm-hmm. goes away when they're saying that to you, Jason, don't reference my name for fear that the stigma associated with this, mm-hmm. with this disorder that I have or my child has um, might cause me or my child some, some grief. And, and those are the types of things that I just don't know. I don't know that we're sort of thinking through, you know what I mean? Well, and I will give you, I will give you a very good example of that. So back up about, this is probably mid nineties. Um, I mentioned yeah. I had Tourette's as a kid. Yeah. Tourette's had the full stigma associated with it. Um, and what's interesting is the one that's popular in pop culture is the same curse words. It's actually a full neurological tick and verbal uh, issue. Yeah. Um, I was the kid, the only girl that my psychologist had ever seen that had the curse word issue. It's very rare. And I had the rarest of the rare forms, which just was like a double whammy. And my mom went in to give my uh, middle school teachers an update on that. And they said, you know, we really don't want to share that with the students because they think of your, they think they like Jillian. They think of her one way. We don't want that to change. And my, my mom's feedback was just she was shocked because this was a teacher of the year telling her that. And she thought she was being the proactive one by coming and saying, like, this is a learning opportunity. Jillian doesn't mind, you know, at sixth grade, I think I must have been like 11, how much I understood at the time, um, you know, doesn't mind advocating and sharing, you know, but she it, it's making her nervous. And that's what's causing her 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 tics to manifest. So she doesn't want she wants to be able to own her story. And tell why it's happening rather than people making assumptions. That ended up not being the case, but it was my first lesson in being the advocate of your own story and being the author of your own story. Because when I, what I learned from that was by telling people up front, I have a seizure, I have something, when it would inevitably happen, people didn't panic, people didn't freak out, people knew, they knew what to do because I had been up front about it. And what I have found that is interesting in my adult life and I think is interesting post pandemic is a lot of that conversation around mental health, whether it's we're talking about anxiety, we're talking about OCD, we're just talking about mental health in general has really normalized in a way that was not there 20 years ago. I never, even five years ago would have felt comfortable coming on a podcast that my peers are listening to (laughs) explaining these kind of things but then I was really motivated by the, the women, very, very, uh, uh, I'm really excited to read their book. Um, you had on your podcast before, Collecting Courage. Right. Yes. Yes. One, I want to say her name was Camila Nunez. Yep. Am I saying that yep. right? Yes. Yes. And she, had a, she had a quote that I, I couldn't have said it better myself. And I want to just reference it. Sure. She said, one thing I've learned and school is the same thing. Being most likely the only one in the room is that you don't have the opportunity not to do well because you don't get a second chance. So we always excel. There's no room to be mediocre or not do well. And even then we get passed over. And when I heard it, I, she was reflecting on her experience as a, a woman of color in fundraising. Yes. And the reason that resonated with me on multiple levels is because she, that quote epitomizes resilience. And one thing that I'm seeing in all the literature about uh, the workforce of tomorrow is that people who are successful, companies that are successful, they will be resilient. And there is nobody more resilient than people who have had to make their way to the table as the only one of their group, whether that's they're a woman, a person of color, um, somebody who identifies with the GLBTQ spectrum, um, in my case, somebody with disabilities. So I, I've gotten comfortable telling my story because I know there's someone listening because I was this, this was me to you three weeks ago. Right. I was listening and thinking, you know, wow, I, I should be speaking up a little bit more to talk about what it means to be um, a person with disabilities because that needs to be represented in the space. And I just loved her quote because People from diverse backgrounds, this is probably my big, bold idea for this podcast. People from diverse backgrounds are the most resilient people you will ever know. And that resilience is going to be a defining feature in the workforce of tomorrow. 
Yeah, I think what we're talking about, I mean, in any in any context, by any definition, difference is essentially diversity in any system is oftentimes recognized as what creates that resilience. And I mm-hmm. think when we think back about when we think along the lines of everything that our sector and the broader economy and our world in general is sort of challenged with today, a lot of it is just this resistance to difference or something being different or someone being different or someone having a different experience or definition to something. And 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 every time I sort of run into that word, I love that you brought up that word resilience. Every time in my own reading and, and research, every time I run into that word resilience, it usually aligns with with notions of difference or diversity. And, um, and our sector right now, you know, our sector and our professional space when it comes to being fundraisers is just, I think back across the number of number of conversations that we've had here on the podcast, um, if that desire and that embrace for diversity and difference, you know, I mean, it's sort of one of those underlying consistent themes that, you know, you, you, when you have as many conversations as we have. Um, and maybe it's the pandemic that, uh, you know, in the George Floyd tragedy and some of these other sort of experiences that we've collectively sort of had to make sense of the last couple of years. Um, there's a number of things that have just really sort of shaken us. And we've started to say, you know, the world's not going to sort of operate according to this, um, very homogeneous, very linear path that Mm -hmm. I'm comfortable with. Well, and one thing I wanted to ask, um, I want to make sure, was I saying her name right, Camilla? Yes, yes, I think that's correct. Okay. Yes, yes. Okay, she's, from, uh, sure. she's from, uh, she's from, uh, she's from, uh, she's from Brazil. She was the younger of those women. Uh, and I was fascinated with the story that she tells about growing up and education mm-hmm. and how much emphasis that her parents put on mm-hmm. education mm-hmm. and stuff. And it was a contrast to my own, what I would consider by, by comparison, you know, much more privileged sort of white household. Um, And and yet I and yet I resent my parents, you know, her parents are putting lots of emphasis on the importance of education. And Mm -hmm. I sort of resent my parents for not seemingly giving a damn about education. So that's why I sort of leaned into that conversation with her. Well, and I the thing that I think is powerful in the education part is um, and this there's a part of her story that I hear in mind because I. When, so I'm from uh, uh, South Florida, and uh-huh. when I went for my master's program, um, I went as far away as I could, which happened to be a scholarship to Portland State in Portland, Oregon. And I remember my seizures weren't quite, but it was also the it was also the going back to the resilience part. My seizures weren't quite under control, and my my mom, my I think my grandmother at the time was like, "Why are you sending her halfway across the country when she hasn't even mastered?" you know, kind of, we haven't even gotten that part under control. It's like knowing when to push people. Yeah. And I remember my mom saying, she's got a great opportunity. I am not going to let the fact that she has a seizure disorder. She's got to learn how to be her own advocate. She's got to learn how to navigate this world as somebody with disabilities. And I'm not going to let that opportunity pass her up. If anything, she was a, you know, I think there were some people in her space that were a little like, why are we doing this? You're going to let her out of the nest. And my mom's like, she needs to do this so she can have that experience. And what I think, and again, I, I just, um, what I think going back to your point about how the pandemic, uh, social movements since then, um, uh, reckonings with oppressive systems, whatnot, that's what I think makes resilience an even more powerful attribute among people with diverse backgrounds because they've had, and that's what I loved about her quote, you have to excel. You have to be better than your the quote unquote normal, normal person, whatever that standard is. Yeah. Because that's how you get a seat at the table. That's the part of the narrative that I think is changing in a lot of these spaces is you don't have to be like, let's make sure it's equitable all across the board. But I can really resonate when she said that because, um, you know, I've I've had that experience. I know what it's like to, you know, that was the conversation, you know, my mom and parents had with me about going into the work world and things like that. They're like, there will be, there is legislation now to help accommodate for your seizures and stuff like that. 
but you have to really prove your worth and you have to show that you're a talented person, whatever you pick to do, that that company would want to work with your accommodating needs to keep you. And that's, I've been very lucky. And this is certainly a place of privilege. I've been very lucky to have places that have seen that both with past employers and current ones. Um, That's why I think it's, it's a powerful idea that as people are talking about, you know, workforces of tomorrow and what you're looking for, I can't say enough about people that have diverse backgrounds, whatever that looks like, because those people have had to, um, if you listen to their stories, and I think that's the reason I was even motivated to come on this podcast to share mine. If people knew one tenth of the uh, challenges, the stereotypes, the assumptions, the oppressive structures that people have had to overcome, that resilience is the only word to describe that. And those are people that have done all of that in spite of all of those things. That's the person that is going to define the workforce of tomorrow. You know, I, I think there's another, as I'm, as I'm reflecting on my own experiences working with the, working at the Epilepsy Foundation, having experienced a seizure disorder my entire life and interacting with major donors um, during that, during that time that I was there, I remember meeting with a couple. I remember, I remember meeting with a couple. I, I want to say they lived in New Jersey. We had dinner a couple of times um, in their entire life. This was a married couple who somehow or another had both experienced. Uh, they, they met early in life. They married, but they both were um, severely affected by a seizure, seizure disorder early in there, you know, from perhaps adolescence or maybe childhood. Um, they married and they navigated their careers. And, and, and my boss and I were getting to know them uh, during their, uh, they were very nearing retirement. They were sort of in that last, say, five, 10 years of, you know, they were planning their retirement. And I also remember they weren't, they were not extraordinarily by any definite, they were not extraordinary wealthy, but they could, they could, you know, they could give the organization say $10,000 a year. So that was very, that was very significant to them. And, and, and by many definitions, that's significant in, in any regard, but it wasn't the, the, you know, the six, seven and eight figure gifts that oftentimes we get especially excited about in our space. Right. And I remember, and I, and I haven't, I haven't probably articulated this Jillian, but now that I think about it, I don't know that I ever thought that they should not be entitled to or experience what it meant to, say, give $10,000 a year to the Epilepsy Foundation any differently than somebody that was giving a million or multiples of millions of dollars. And I think that's part of what we that we as fundraisers have really got to wrestle with is we've used some of these cost basis and marketplace assumptions about how we go about our work. But maybe it's, it's kind of, maybe it's like that interaction that I've had, that I had early in my career that sort of helped me think through, you know, if you're going to collect a $10,000 check from a donor who's been affected by a disorder for which you represent, right? If you're going to visit with them, if you're going to take the time to try, you know, if you're going to build a meaningful relationship with them, perhaps the size of the check needs to be secondary. Perhaps the size of the check needs to be put on the back burner. Um, because I guarantee you for this particular, you know, they were both, they were both state employees. They both, I remember very vividly that they both worked for the state of, uh, state of New Jersey, which means they were not of extraordinary means but they weren't broke either. You know, they, they prepared themselves for retirement. Um, but I also think some of the conversations that we've had as of late, you know, on the podcast and in the fundraising community, the size of that check oftentimes takes an overwhelming role in our, um, in our thinking. And, uh, and, and when you look at it through the lens of this conversation, the size of that check may not should matter as much. Am I right? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I have a, a story to back that up. The, um, one of, there are two things that I believe to be true of every great frontline fundraiser I've ever had the pre- pleasure and or practice of working with. And that's 
they know first and foremost that our donors are human. They are people. They are people with complex lives, concerns. And also, I've always thought this, especially being somebody who uh, really uh, resonates with plan giving, size of what your size of your gift, it matters, yes, but I've always, this was, and this was truly what got me into fundraising in the first place. The act of philanthropy, of giving something, whether it's $5 to tithe to your local church or yeah. $10 to buy Girl Scout cookies, that's probably not what they go for now, but um, uh, it is or not. A, million, <laughs> a million dollars to fund your, to endow a position at your alma mater or the hospital where your husband's life was saved. That's a social act of giving something rather than spending whatever, you know, to me, that's a very, a very, um, human, uh, and I sometimes maybe, uh, uh, put this on a, on a pedestal, but there's something very altruistic about that. Yeah. And so there was a, a colleague I got to know through, um, and I, the other second thing I would say is frontline fundraisers always leave part of themselves in a relationship. The really good ones, they're the ones that they've, they've figured out the connection point, even if they're just stewarding on behalf of the organization, they go on. Um, they leave a part of themselves in that relationship because of how they've connected with that person. And the example I'll give you is, um, we would have a, uh, uh, we had a donor at the charity where I previously worked who, um, whose daughter, uh, also, um, uh, uh, received some services and, um, I got to know them and they were very, you know, close and, um, we're still friends to this day, but it was always interesting to me. Um, the, we just became friends and it, it, the gifts were not, I can really, it's a similar story to what you said. The gifts are not, um, they were meaningful to her Yes, yes and yes. they were meaningful to her because, um, and I'm sure you'd find this in a, in, uh, in fundraising and hospitals, which I've never done. So full disclosure, but patients and donors kind of overlap. And it was more the fact that they wanted to support that. And sometimes it was, uh, coming from her, um, uh, coming from her, uh, her family member as well. To me, that was one of the most meaningful relationships that I still maintain to this day as a friend. Um, it, those are ones that have left a mark on me as a fundraiser and they were not about the amount. They were about the quality of the relationship and the fact that we bonded over having shared experiences as people with disabilities. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it just, uh, Jillian, I don't think I have thought much about that particular. We met with them a couple of times during my tenure there. Um, and I, like I said, I don't think their, uh, you know, I don't think their gifts were, were much, perhaps much larger than say $10,000 in any single year. But I remember, I remember thinking or knowing, I remember knowing that this was an extraordinary gift for them for who they were at this particular time of life, given the resources that they had. And now I'm sort of connecting the dots with the, with the why behind their giving. Right. And I think we just have to, as fundraisers get outside of that. Um, I remember, and I've talked about this a couple of times here on the podcast, uh, you know, a major gifts officer at a local, very elite university nearby told me once that, you know, his supervisor said that they could not meet with a donor who could not give anything less than a hundred thousand dollars. And I thought, shit, there's plenty. I can tell, I can, I can show you a lot of organizations in my local community. It'll take a lot of people out to lunch for less than a hundred thousand dollars. And I just think that some of these metrics have sort of gotten in the way of that understanding that why, um, everything you and I are talking. And I think it's fascinating too, that you talk about the idea of, that a fund, I don't think I've ever heard anybody sort of articulate it that way, Jillian, that, that every fundraiser sort of leaves a piece of themselves in, the, in these relationships. Well, that's essentially what we're talking about when we talk about exchanging gifts, because we know that the donors oftentimes leaving a piece of themselves in their gift. 
these aren't these aren't commodities. This isn't you know this isn't like buying a cell phone or something. Well, and these are these are human connections. Um, my uh, and I think one point I would add to that statement is donors leave part of it in their gifts, but the best that those are how those relationships start. So the people that and this is what I saw fundraising through a pandemic when my means of stewarding donors was having them out to come and experience the zoo that we have, which is wonderful. And I couldn't, I couldn't give that to anybody. So I had to figure out, okay, how do I communicate that sense of hope and that sense of being outside and that sense of wonderment and fulfillment that kids, adults like alike get when they see and feed a giraffe for the first time. And what I came up with was I was relying on the relationships. I'd been at this point at the zoo for about four years. I was relying on the connections I'd made with those people by knowing what animal they liked, by knowing, by knowing them as people, as people first. And I think that's how I, that was how I was taught to fundraise is looking at them as people first, which is kind of funny because when you connect that back to the, uh, our topic about uh, having seizure disorders, yeah, the concept in the disability community is that when you reference people with disabilities, you reference them as a person first, then by their disability. Right. So the person who's deaf, the person who is blind, because that's just a part of who they are. It's not the defining feature. And I just kind of made my own aha moment about that, about our donors are people first. They have stories. They have just like we are people first. And um, I think, and this goes to one point I'll make um, about uh, um, investing in your diverse employees. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's probably, I will tell you, it is one of the reasons I've stayed at the zoo. I'm coming up on seven years. That's a long time in frontline fundraising. Um, And I was, that certainly played into stewarding people through a pandemic because I knew them as people first. Um, It's not hard to retain your employees, especially your fundraisers. If you do it with a sense of knowing who they are as people first and giving them space to grow their relationships based on having a connection with them as people first, that's exactly how my, my team operates. And I'm very lucky to work on a team that operates like that. But the thing I keep coming back to is also we talk about in the fundraising literature about self-care, about taking care of ourselves as fundraisers. So I'll kind of maybe close on the story that um, I was debating on sharing or not. But um, I so I went about 12 years without having any seizures and Mm -hmm. it was great. I drove. I did all the things that I didn't think I could ever do. Right. And then. I started to have some issues, um, minor ones, but they culminated in having a, uh, a, just a seizure at work for lack of a better word. Yeah. And I hadn't had one in years. It was really a shock to me, a shock to my, um, my team. Fortunately, they knew what to do. We, we'd all kind of, you know, that's kind of like my intro. Hi, I'm Jillian. And I have, you know, blah, blah, blah. If this happens, please call my husband and don't panic. Um, and so, uh, but I remember going home that day with my husband thinking, he's like, look, he's like, you're not going to be able he's like, I don't think you're, we can have you driving anymore. He's like, this is just too much. And I, and I understood it. I totally got that. But as a fundraiser who was used to coming and going on my own terms, that was like, that was the, the moment that the earth unraveled beneath me and like the ground fell out. And I was like, how am I going to fundraise? How am I going to, how am I going to do my job right. as a as a fundraiser, if I can't drive <laughs> and, and, and I remember having this conversation and I just remember thinking, this is, this is over. There's no, I, I have had, you know, flexible accommodations before, but never in the instance where I couldn't drive. And I remember talking to my boss and uh, he just, he was like, he's like, this is a non-issue. He's like, we will figure this out, which mm-hmm. a was exactly how he, you know, I, I needed to hear but he said, he said, you look, you're, we'll figure this out. He's like, we, we, we do tours at our zoo. So um, sometimes we drive uh, golf carts. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to be able to drive a golf cart. And we got some of our ranger team to help. Um, there are uh, kind of our frontline customer service slash security. And th- like the amount of, I guess my point is the amount of support that I got, and it was just me. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this uh, for my whole organization. 
to set me up for success so I could focus on my role of connecting people with the zoo. That's why I'm there five years later, because that they have such an uh, ingrained sense of loyalty for me. And that those little things, they don't cost a lot. They don't like, that's the thing when I hear people talk about retaining and um, uh, retaining people and fundraisers, the same things we talk about, about retaining our donors are the same things apply that retaining to our fundraisers yeah. or retaining your period. And it was, I just use that as an example of what an inclusive, diverse employer looks like. It's, it was not rocket science. It was not complicated. It was not, and most of the time it's not, it's just meeting the person where they're at, which was kind of my opening point, meeting our donors where they're at, meeting their fundraisers where they're at, meeting people where they're at. And I think the part I'd close with is, uh, I learned this from a mentor of mine. Questions are more powerful than answers. I would add to that questions asked with curiosity lead to collaboration. And I'm, I'm very uh, privileged to work in an organization that leads with questions and leads with questions asked with curiosity, because I believe curiosity and authenticity are the hallmarks of a great fundraiser. Jillian, we lose our listeners at about 50 minutes in and you've landed the plane at a point where I should just let you tell people how to find you if they're interested in continuing the conversation, not try to say anything. Uh, I don't need to top that. You ended that perfectly, perfectly. So Jillian, if somebody's listening to our conversation, uh, oftentimes they're interested in reaching out to you. Perhaps someone uh, wants to share their story with you. It sounds like you would be great to uh, uh, afford a listening ear to them. How would you like to have them do that. Uh, I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn as Jillian day. Um, uh, you're welcome to connect with me on there. Um, I hope if one person's listening to this and, uh, there's something that's diverse about you that other people can't see, whether it's a disability or something else in this resonate, I'd be happy to connect. Um, or even just fundraising. I, uh, um, I love the, I've loved how, um, I think much more open our community has become um, in the last few years and whatever I can do to support that staying that way, I feel is a good use of my time. Jillian, it's certainly been a pleasure. You're always welcome back. Thank you very much, Jason. And thank you for having um, uh, conversations like this and questions like this to keep us uh, thinking and reflecting. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.